you probably noticed we don't have videos of people saying why they hate church. And uh, that would be counterproductive. So we never plan on doing that. We only want to present those who are satisfied customers. And the Schroders have been with us for about six years. They don't stand up front a lot, but they've, uh, they've integrated into this, uh, into this body, and they are serving in significant ways. I, I want you to know, though, that uh, not everybody likes church. Sometimes it takes quite a while for them to get used to attending a church or even to go once in a lifetime. And I, if you're wondering what are some of the reasons why people don't like church, Listen to some of these that I'm about to tell you. It's too early. No, it's too late. It's too dressy. It's too informal. It's too, it's irrelevant. You sing way too much. There's too many old people in church. It's catchy. Or every, there's so many children running around, I might fall and, and injure myself. The people are way too friendly and it can't be real. I don't like wearing ties. The old guy talks way too long. <clears throat> He's not on my wavelength. He's way too deep. It's above my head. Or it's, there's not enough substance in it. He speaks in too much of a feel-good way, touchy-feely. Or he speaks with way too much guilt producing. Uh, producing. It's too hot there in the summer. It doesn't come at a convenient time during my Sunday. It's too cold in winter. They have fake smiles, and they're on fake people. Besides, when the offering plate goes by, I'm too embarrassed not to drop anything in, and I don't have any money. Uh, it's too much of an in-crowd at that church. It's too far from my home. There's too much God talk. I'd rather be skiing. I'd rather be surfing. Church is for losers. If any of these sound familiar to you, I want you to know they're not new. I used them in 1965 when I told my brother and my sister why I would not go to church with him. And uh, they won. I lost. But I could have received a, a creative, uh, you might say, creative writing award through all the illustrations and reasons why I could tell my older brother and sister why I wasn't going to church with him. We're now looking at 50 years later, and they continue to snicker when they, every time they see me. Somehow those dropped away, and I found that the reasons that I was avoiding church, even though they were as numerous as the stars, uh, I hadn't been in so long I forgot what it was like. So there's a lot of reasons why people aren't attending church. But if instead I told you that I was going to a gathering of the most successful enterprise in the history of the human race, would you be a bit more motivated? For a few years, Barb worked for a company in Evergreen that started in the owner's basement. Uh, they, uh, they continued to develop it. It was a sort of an information technology thing for smaller um, uh, for smaller businesses that they could provide services for them. And within a few years, they moved out of the basement and they occupied an entire three-story office building here in town. Um, it got to be so successful that the owning couple sold it, walked away with millions of dollars, and then watched the parent company begin to merge both sets of clients so that within a couple years, they could close the business. 
The enterprise was so successful that to beat it, they had to buy it so they could close it. That's the way the business world works. I want to say when we take it back to the church, I am more convinced that the church is having a wider and deeper impact in this world because its founder is still fully invested. He bought it with his life and he infuses it with supernatural resources that are at his command only. And he enlists the strangest bunch of people with almost never having a background check. And for whatever reasons, these people do the most absurd, dedicated acts that cause even more people to join the enterprise. I'm talking about the Church of Jesus Christ. His people who share a common faith in him and call him Lord. Some of them, from time to time, get tired of church. I understand that. I could tell you pastor's jokes of pastors who were tired of church. But they still find themselves to be a part of the church around the world. So while some and many are asking why church, what they do not understand is that it's designed to be more than a great building or a bad building. It's designed to be more than a a group of people gathering together, however weird or out of touch they seem to be. It is the most successful movement in the history of humankind. It has phenomenal success, and the success is all attributed to its founder, Jesus of Nazareth, whom we call the Christ. Why church? Because you need to be involved in something that's working, in a surging movement that continues to grow and swell around the world. And from the inception of the church, people have watched from the outside, and they've been puzzled. You know, they they see recent converts, and they say, you know, this was such a a nice, ordinary person who stayed out of my business. And then this person got religion. And now this person has become a royal pain in my neck. Why? Because he's suddenly caring more effectively for me. He's concerned about me. He's aggressive about his faith. And he's spending less and less time in the neighborhood. Uh, The reason behind it all is this person has experienced what we call a personal transformation. It's a change. The change that has brought this person into a surging movement. Let me use one of the prime examples in Scripture to to help you understand this unexplainable transformation that occurs. Less than 60 days after the disciple, whom we call Peter, had told people three times that he had nothing to do with Jesus. He denied him three times. He now stands in a crowd of thousands of people and declares that this Jesus of Nazareth is God's Messiah. They share the guilt for killing Jesus and that Jesus had risen and ascended to his heavenly Father where he rules as Lord. If you hear that story and you read it through the scriptures, you've got to ask this question. What happened to you, Peter? What's the difference? How could you go from one who's saying, I never knew Jesus, to suddenly standing in front of thousands of people and blaming them for his death? Peter was transformed from the inside out. He is now both bold and unashamed. And he is totally aligned with Jesus. Not perfectly. He would continue to make mistakes. 
But as Peter takes his stand, so the movement of Jesus surges as new followers make bold stands for him even today. We will talk about the transformation process and and how God works in this next week. But today, just understand that the church is filled with Peters who boldly uh, work and speak to honor Jesus in their lives. So to simply say that they've changed their mind about Jesus, that's what a politician says. I've changed my mind. I've rethought my my position. Uh, It goes deeper than that. A change of mind or a change of position is just too weak because it might change again. God has changed their lives. Transformation comes with faith in Jesus Christ. And the building is, or the church, as we say, is filled with transformed people. Now, some will express it very uniquely. Some express their faith very poorly. You probably know one or two of those. Most, though, do it according to their personalities that God has given them. They may not do it speaking publicly, but somehow, some way, each will be demonstrating that faith, and God has a, you know, undeniable or beautiful ways of doing it, and He's unlimited. So we have to say that over the years, there's been people after person after person like Peter, where it says Peter was taking his stand there as he speaks about Jesus. And when he's done, there's sort of undeniable growth. The numbers prove it. When Peter finishes his talk, and if you take time to read the talk out loud, it's about 10 minutes long, maybe 12. It's not that long. No comments. Okay. The crowd is stunned. The crowd is convicted. And many who had demanded Jesus' crucifixion are now asking forgiveness from Jesus. Now, I know several church planters. We have a couple in this church who have uh, planted churches. And if you, uh, if you gave them this example, they would snicker. They would say, it couldn't happen. A man starts a church in the very area where he grew up. He begins with a handful of charter members. He's a desired speaker, so instead of staying in his local area, he travels around the country and speaks to thousands of people over a period of about three years. And so at the end of those three years, you look at his church that he's planted in this one community, and uh, it has about 120 devoted members. Now, if you've ever been involved in church planting, you know 120 in about three years is called modestly successful. Just modestly successful. Not hugely successful. And in your annual review, when you sit down with your mentor about church planting, the church planter would say two things. Stay at home. Stop traveling. You'll have better success if you stay at home and stop traveling. Well, instead, you might say, the founder or the planting pastor of this church retires. He says, I'm done. Of course, Jesus was crucified, so he was done here on earth. So he retires. And within 60 days after leaving, there's no new pastor who has come in, and the church grows to 3,000 adults. Now, if humanly, you'd say, well, why didn't that pastor leave sooner? It would have worked much better, much quicker. 
Why couldn't he have left even sooner? But that church continues to swell, so within the next year, there are 5,000 attending, and among those 5,000 are the adversaries of Jesus, the founding pastor. In the next few years, they send missionaries out to surrounding areas with similar results. What started as a small ethnic group church has now become a church plant that attracts people from every background in the area. That was the church in Jerusalem in its first few years. And over the next 200 years, there was much persecution. But as as hard as they tried to execute the Christians, two or three stood up and took their place every time one was killed. So during those 200 years, it continues to swell and surge. When Emperor Constantine declares the, uh, the Roman Empire to suddenly be Christian in about 323, there are over 10 million already in the empire. By the year 1000 AD, there's over 50 million. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to read you a lot of statistics. There'll be no eye contact here. Just listen and drink it in. 50 million in one Uh, in 1000 AD. In 1700 AD, there were 215 million. By by 1900, there were 500 million, half a billion. From 1900 to 1980, there are now 1.3 billion professing Christians in, in, in the world. And by 1990, 1.8 billion, and we believe right now there's about 2.3 billion professing Christians in the world. Now, you might claim, look, there's Christians and there's Christians. There's all types of Christians, and some of them, uh, their faith I question. Okay, okay. The most honored researcher, how do I say honored? He published this book by himself. That's honorable, Okay. It's called the World Christian Encyclopedia, looking at every country and how the church has progressed in the world over the last uh, uh, several centuries, and, and looking at the phenomenal growth of faith in Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ in those years. So uh, he is the most respected researcher on the subject, and he reports that Christians that believe the Bible and attempt to live the Bible went from one out of 100 in the, 15, in the 15th century to one in seven by the year 2000. And we believe now it's uh, still around that, that number. God has put on the hearts of many Christians that they are to reach the world for their God that they long to honor. Most of them begin by prayer, and many of them do go to those nations, but most do not do not go and cannot go, but God has other means. Twenty-five years ago, a group of people involved with one of the great uh, uh, Christian outreach organizations of, uh, of this, uh, actually of the world, began to pray that in 25 years there would be one million new churches in the country of India, which is mainly Hindu and Muslim. They began to pray that, and last year, 2014, one year before uh, the 25 years was up, they said that the mission was fulfilled. One 
million new churches. Sure, they're small. One million new churches in India. They have reached the untouchable class that are thirsting for a relationship with God, that are thirsting for an acceptance with God because they're put down so much by their culture. God has prepared them to respond. Uh, The one million church prayer request fulfilled in, in just 24 years. Did you know that in China today there are 20 million more Christians than there are registered communists? That doesn't bode well for that country's future. And if you want more good news, where's Nick Donoff? Raise your hand, Nick. Nick's back here. Uh, Talk to Nick because he goes to countries where Christians are still under suspicion. Uh, He speaks to pastors and encourages pastors and has to be careful how visible he is. But, But Nick is one of those that is watching very slowly in the most restrictive countries God's movement begin and continue to surge even if their governments remain unfriendly. And all of these, these are Christians who by profession of personal faith have turned their lives over to Jesus. It was not demanded by the state that they do this. In fact, it was discouraged. So you may ask, well, you know, I I live in the United States. You're talking about China and Africa and India. What about the United States? we got to admit, we're only holding our own here. Uh, Many surveys say church attendance is declining, and in Europe it's declined even more. Uh, Well, I have some problems here that I would like to, uh, you know, when they claim that church attendance is down. First of all, I have found that their secular methods tend to be faulty. They're looking for decline. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, they are, they don't measure this, but many of the churches that are declining are the ones who've turned their back on the authority of the Bible. And then Christians, finally, are gathering in many ways that they can't survey and cannot cover. Now, look, here in the United States, we are long overdue for a return uh, for a return to Jesus Christ and, and new faith in him. We are long overdue for that. How many of you here are under 40? Raise your hand. Okay. You are called millennials. Go for it. Go sick them. This will happen in your generation. We are way behind on this. Don't let me hold you back. Go after them. So the growth itself, when you see how it has progressed in numbers, but rightfully so, you say numbers aren't enough. Certainly there's got to be more things involved than just great numbers. Numbers speak to the quantity only. But let's face it, a lot of bad things can happen that we do not want to brag about. And the church has made mistakes. So you should, when you're answering the question, why church? And you say it's a wonderful movement. We should also talk about the good that the church has accomplished. Chances are if you go to a hospital in the near future and you have a choice and you list those, you'll go to St. Something and not Denver Health. There's more of us than there are of them. Yes, they share their funding now, but... These have been around a lot longer. Let's talk about other things, um, about the good that Christians have done and this surging movement. From the very beginning, Jesus, in his method of operation and ministry, doesn't go to the, 
uh, you know, to the rich, to the elite. Instead, he goes to those that the world rejects, the lepers. He does not hesitate to offer comfort and healing to the most miserable people on earth, whether they be poor, disformed, disfigured, uh, diseased, it just doesn't stop him. And from the beginning, his followers, therefore, imitate him. So once the church reaches about 3,000 in numbers, as it was established at Pentecost, among their most notable practices is it says they gave to anyone who was in need. Not just some, but to anyone that they could find who was in need. They gave with generosity to the needy. First of all, they loved each other deeply and gave to the most needy among themselves, but they loved all who had need. And this visible imitation of Jesus has continued to this day. You cannot trace in the Western world the advance of healthcare and education except through the influence of followers of Jesus Christ. Those two things, healthcare and education, used to be privileges for the elite. It was Christians who said, no, this is for everybody. You cannot trace the, the, the progress of, of women's rights without looking to Christians who are devoted to Jesus Christ. And you see, in all of these, where, where the advances have come is those countries that share the Judeo-Christian worldview and, and all of these rights and privileges and gifts have been pr- promoted by those involved in the Christian worldview. The main difference is that In the church, we have a value not just for the human race, but in the church, we say we have a value for every individual human. It's not, I love humanity. I love people. And I love the people that I might find myself confronting and and intersecting. I love people. And so who are the ones now who are considered the most unaccepted? It is the unborn and the elderly. They have the fewest rights in the world. More than that, when it comes to helping those in disaster situations, whether it's a tsunami in in Indonesia, an earthquake in Turkey, or a tornado in Oklahoma, the church is there already. And it shows up days before the government can get their act together. You know, it's never our good deeds, we admit this, that we claim save us. But it's our deeds in the name of Jesus that we do for no pay and desiring no recognition that gains Jesus' honor. It's easier to understand why the movement of Jesus continues to surge around the world. It's because people are face-to-face with Christians. And as they deal with real Christians, they're impressed with who our God is. He transforms them, and he makes them less involved with themselves. How did all this begin? It begins with what I call an unforced assignment. It begins at that moment in which uh, 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 Jesus looks at Peter after Peter has said, You are the Christ. And Jesus said, Well, well done, you know. Peter, you didn't just think of this. God told you this. And then he says, your name is no longer Simon. I'm going to be calling you Peter. Peter means the rock. And with that name, he promises him that on his confession, 
that Jesus was the Christ, that he would build his church. Now, today, Christians will have different opinions and, and arguments about, uh, from different denominations about what the rock means. You know, Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. But instead, I encourage you to just look at those one, two, three, four, five words. The content of the promise that Jesus made. I will build my church. And so Jesus has over the centuries delivered on this promise. Now, I've been talking about how Christians go out into the world and, they, and, and they're part of the surging movement. But who is the one who said he's building the church? Is it me? Uh, this is responsive. Is it me? Am I building the church? Thanks a lot. But no, I'm not. Ultimately, I'm not. Who is building his church? Jesus. The thrust and the success of the movement of faith in Jesus Christ has only one foundational reason behind it, the founder. It is the person of Jesus Christ himself and he says, I am totally invested in my church that it will be built. And so sometimes it happens in miraculous ways through miraculous people, but usually it's done through ordinary ways, through uh, methods that are so common and mundane that we miss the supernatural in them together. As Jesus is speaking to his disciples uh, right after his resurrection, he meets with ten uh, of the 11 who are still left, and they are hiding in fear. And the first level of their fear, of course, is that they will be arrested and crucified like Jesus. But let's be honest, the real fear is when they see Jesus alive. That would bring me to my knees. That would cause me to shake. So there they are, they are shaking. And they're really afraid as they see the risen Christ. And he gives them this traditional greeting, peace be with you. Now, um, Usually, those of you who've been around a while say, why does Jesus, uh, why does Jim uh, hold the scripture back to the end? Because this message demands that I do, in a way. Uh, usually, we start with the scripture very early on, but this is sort of how it all got to be to this point. Jesus gives an unforced assignment when he says, I will build my church, but he says how it's going to be done. It's going to be done through people. And so he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this was not the actual reception of the Holy Spirit, but it was like a foretaste of what was about to come. So there they are afraid. And by the time he's done with them, he gives them an offer that some could refuse. He says, as the Father sent me into the world, now I am sending you like my emissaries, like my secretary of state. And I'm not demanding it. It's an invitation. And some of them could have said, well, you know, I need a year or two off. Give me a break, Jesus. Or I just don't feel like it right now. I'm going to turn down your offer. I'll consider it in a little while. But the reality of the risen Christ makes desertion impossible. The more you are focused on who he is and that he is alive, as we were singing this morning, it makes desertion impossible. 
Resurrection reality trumps personal fear. It did for them. It always will. Resurrection reality that Jesus is alive and he gives us a commission trumps our personal fears. It also builds faith. Resurrection reality builds our faith. Let me just share with you, in the last uh, five years, we've, at Bergen Park Church, have been focused on getting this done. From the building of our, our, of our uh, I mean, the purchase of the new land that we're on, uh, the dropping of the, uh, of the addition to our old facility, and, and marshalling all of our resources to get this done, uh, I have spent five years pretty much involved right here. And yet, as I've done that, it has been a major, major event in my life. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Parents, maybe you do this sometimes. You ask the big question in my life, how are my kids doing? And then you evaluate your life according to how they're doing. I understand it. It's just not the way you should evaluate your life. If your kids are doing fine, you pat yourself on the back. If they're not doing fine, you feel like a miserable failure. You shouldn't look at life that way. Instead, this has been my baby, and I've had a lot of help. But the more you focus on one local thing, the less you look at the surging movement around the world and throughout history. Uh, Right now, one of our women uh, is, uh, is in Romania. Nick Donoff leaves about every two or three months, and he goes over to Asia. Uh, we are involved right here in our community in the Pregnancy Center and, and Evergreen Christian Outreach. We're, we're involved in the inner city school down in East Denver. Uh, we have these wonderful things going on. And yet, if you're focused just on this little thing, then you might be saying, well, how is God doing? Well, it rises and falls with Bergen Park Church. And God's world is much bigger than Bergen Park Church. Now, let me just say this. If you're a part of Bergen Park Church, it's doing great. (laughs) Okay? But it hasn't always. It also helps build faith for those of you who just are troubled right now. What do I mean by that? When we have inner struggles or even outer struggles in our lives, we tend to focus on those and we judge how we are doing according to how those circumstances are doing. Listen to a Christian psychiatrist of a year, you know, of several years past, Carl Manager, who started the Manager uh, 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 Clinic. And he once said, the best way to overcome depression is to leave my office, cross the street, and help somebody in need. I put it this way. The surging movement of Jesus Christ is inviting you to come in and take part. The surging movement of Jesus Christ says, join with all the Christians throughout history. And become involved in something much bigger, much grander than anything you had ever dreamed or imagined. The surging movement of Jesus Christ is inviting each one of us. Find some way in which you are participating in it. Come in. 
Be a part. Devote yourselves. Invest yourselves into something where you realize you're taking part of the movement that has been around for 2,000 years and will continue to surge and grow until Christ comes back. I once got real bold with somebody who said, I just don't feel like doing this. And I looked him in the eye, and I can't believe I said this, because I'm usually a nice guy. I got out of my niceness, and I just looked at him and said, what else are you doing that's any better? There was silence. I had to pay for that lunch. I felt like I really stepped into his boundaries there a little bit. But I was so glad that I did because he said, I've been thinking about what you told me for the last month and what you told me I should be involved in is exactly what I should do. I'm not doing anything better right now. Jesus says, come. Receive Holy Spirit. And as the Father is sending me, so I'm sending you. Where is he sending you? Let's pray. Almighty God, you have the world on your heart and it is so evident that you are using your people, not just now, but forever. Help us to go beyond just thinking, what is he doing in my community? What is he doing in my life? What is he doing in our state or our country? It's what are you doing throughout history around the world? And oh, Lord, are you marvelous and at work and causing really tidal waves of faith to be going from country to country, people to people. And I agree with you this morning that I will never be happier or more fulfilled or sensing I have God's purpose for my life than when I am honoring you through serving you. I will never be happier or more purposeful in my life I pray you would continue to multiply that, not just around the world, but continue to cause it to swell right here in our mountain community, right here at Bergen Park Church, right here at 3927 South Ponderosa Drive, Evergreen, Colorado, 80439. Lord, do that. That's our prayer. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.